IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IB Talk, the insurance business podcast broadcast throughout Australia, New Zealand, Asia Pacific, the US, Canada, and the UK. I'm Paul Lucas, the managing editor of Insurance Business, and I'm delighted to say that on this global podcast, we are welcoming an executive with a truly global role. He is the global president of Claim Solutions at Crawford and Company, Kieran Rigby. Kieran, welcome to IB Talk. Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. Delighted to be here. So, Kieran, um, I, I mentioned that you're in a global role, um, but your career has also made you quite a globe trotter. Um, you were the CEO of Gab Robbins UK um, at the time that it was acquired by Crawford back in 2014, but you've held a host of roles prior to that, including managing the business in Ireland, uh, moving with your family to Sydney to run the operations in Australia. I know you also had responsibilities for the Asia-Pacific region as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about those different experiences and how it was, especially to, to move from Ireland to Australia? Sure. Well, I mean, firstly, I'm not able to disguise the accent, so uh, I am Irish, as, as most people uh, will, will gather very quickly. And, I mean, that's where I grew up in the loss adjusting business and where I, you know, like many others, did my CII and seller exams, etc. Um, and I ran the business in Ireland that was GAB Robbins at the time for a few years um, and then migrated to Australia to do the same with the business over there. Um, look, one of the big, t- big things when you move like that is you've got to um, get to know your team um, because, again, they're not people I would have worked with closely being 10,000 10, miles away. And also the clients and the markets is very, very different. And what I found in my various moves, whether it was Australia, whether it was ultimately coming back to the UK, whether it was um, you know, periods with Asia, um, largely... Um, I would say there are far more similarities than differences uh, between markets and how the business is transacted, um, but you've got to respect those differences. And I would say in more recent terms, that a very big part of my role today involving um, segments of our U.S. business, um, it's the same thing. The fundamentals of the, of the role maybe are not so different, but you really do have to respect the differences in terms of um, markets, client demands, um, outputs and indeed um, our own people and and their expectations. Can you give us a little more, um, shed a little bit more light on that for us? I mean, what 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 are those sort of differences that you see in terms of the expectations in, say, North America and the UK and Australia? Yeah, look, one of the very big differences we see, if I take maybe two areas, if we look at say, take property loss adjusting um, as it is today. In many of the markets, we perform under a delegated authority arrangements cradle-to-grave services. Um, in other words, we take the claim from the first notification by our client, and we bring it right through to a negotiated settlement, and indeed, in many instances, fulfillment, and we have those fulfillment services as well, such as our contractor connection network. Um, when we look at North America, for argument's sake, or particularly when I say North America, more the US, because Canada falls more in what I've just described, Um, But in the U.S., there are many clients who want us to undertake the job as far as preparing the estimate of the damage which facilitates the settlement, but which may be reserved to the carrier. So they may prefer to to undertake the final settlement of the claim. So in other words, our brief is, is not quite as broad. Again, there's nothing universal about that. Some clients, it goes cradle to grave, but in other ones, it's... um, 
it's 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 uh, finishes at the estimate role, at the estimate the estimate stage, and that also then has an impact in how we organise our business because um, when you do cradle to grave, you're going to have much longer life cycles. If we think about the floods recently in the UK, flood claims typically are complex. You've got drying out, stripping out before you can even start to any restoration works. Whereas if you're just doing it to an estimate point, you can probably prepare an estimate within <clears throat> within days in some cases. In other cases, maybe it's several weeks uh, because you've got to allow for full drying out to determine the full scope of the damage. Um, so there are those, those types of nuances. Um, and obviously when we deal with casualty claims, Paul, mm -hmm. it's very different because we're in different legal environments. And again, the, so, so not just the scope of what we're, we're asked to do by our clients, but also um, what's permitted in different jurisdictions, what type of investigations are permitted, and what licensing is needed. Uh, because in some markets we're not regulated, or we're regulated by proxy where the insurer ha has the um, regulations imposed, such as the UK, but we must then conform with them so that those clients can use us and, and satisfy the regulatory authorities. But in other, other jurisdictions, <coughs> US even state by state is a good example. Um, through a number of the Asian markets uh, would be a good example, um, where we actually have to have our adjusters licensed. Canada similarly, very specific licensing um, for, for our activities. And I imagine um, there are cultural differences as well in terms of the, the clients that you're dealing with and their expectations. Yeah, there, there, there are certainly some cultural differences. Look, I, I would say, um, and just casting, casting my own mind back to when I was on the tools, I would say nine times out of ten, um, if, 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 if there's a reasonable approach um, and people understand what you're trying to achieve in the role as their as the, as the loss adjuster, um, I, I think the opportunity for... Um, disputes, etc., does dissipate somewhat. Of course there can be differences, and of course experts can disagree, but I think in terms of the fundamental rapport, trust, and relationship that's built up with, with a, with a policyholder um, and or their advisors, um, it's not so different really from market to market, and that's really important for us getting our job done. And, uh, and, and I've always said a broker, a good broker, um, is very, very valuable in the process as well. Because the broker will be known to the client for quite a long time, and they normally have a very solid relationship. The adjuster can come into that um, program, um, if it's not a nominated account, comes in only at a point of crisis. Um, and very often the client will look to the broker to advise or guide in terms of, you know, is what I'm being offered reasonable? Is this a, a you know, reasonable outcome to my loss under the terms of my policy? Um, and a broker's, a broker's um, influence in that regard is, is, is critical. And I think that's the same the world over, particularly on commercial claims where the brokers are, are very prevalent. You, you mentioned uh, a minute or two ago there about the, the recent the flood, floods in the UK. Um, and if, if we're to look at the sort of the issue of 
catastrophe planning and uh, and catastrophe response, mm. I suppose, on on a larger issue. I mean, you know, we're talking obviously on a global scale here. I guess Crawford's been dealing with, for example, in in recent years, the hurricanes in the U.S., uh, the Fort McMurray wildfire in Canada, the Townsville floods and the bushfires in Australia, uh, the earthquakes in New Zealand, perhaps. I mean, with these events seemingly becoming more and more frequent, how has this made you, as a business, have to sort of adjust your approach? Yeah, Paul, you've hit the nail on the head. It's a very good question because even at the moment, we have um, uh, catastrophe um, operations fully active in Australia, and that's not just bushfires, but also subsequent flooding and hailstorms. We obviously have them mobilized in the UK following the floods, which are are quite widespread, not, not just limited to one or two geographic regions. Um, similarly, we have quite a lot of people in uh, Puerto Rico at the moment, um, and indeed we have, uh, you know, following the tornado and somewhere like Nashville, and um, that one hit the headlines over here as well. But we have many of those instances which might be more localized. There isn't huge loss of life, so it doesn't make the, the world news, but they're quite significant events for it, and we events and we mobilise um, specific resources around them. For us, it's really about it's about being in a state of readiness, um, and our readiness involves one leveraging the resources that we have in any given country um, to respond very promptly. But it also includes bringing in resources from elsewhere. We have quite a big team from Canada operating in Australia at the moment, for example. Um, so we do move resources. We tend to get the visas expedited because the, the, the country's concerned when we're trying to mobilize people um, recognize what we do, uh, and we can usually short-circuit the, the normal processes. Uh, but again, they're for short-term visas, and it's for a very specific purpose, so it's probably quite an easier um, decision from the authorities' perspective. I think we have some pretty good um, kit and equipment and systems um, where we can actually mon- monitor and manage um, resources almost on a pop-up basis in different um, locations around the world when events happen. And that, mo- that, that, that monitoring management and data collection is absolutely crucial because more and more, I mean, I'm going to say within 72 hours of an event, if we can get in on the site, um, you know, we, we like to be able to give our clients some kind of reserving, some kind of feel for the type of exposures that they're looking at because they in turn need that, uh, both within their own organizations and sometimes to make public statements about what an event means for them. And of course, brokers have to be very, have to be mobilized very quickly themselves. Um, but it's very difficult to plan ahead for these things, isn't it? I mean, what, what sort of steps do you think that brokers can take, you know, especially those that are perhaps in those regions that are, you know, being particularly heavily hit right now. So, you know, for example, you know, if you're in New, New South, excuse me, New South Wales in Australia, where obviously, you know, the, the bushfires have become more frequent, or if you're in uh, perhaps the Florida Panhandle, uh, which has been heavily hit by the hurricanes in recent years. I mean, if, if you're in those locations, how can you sort of plan ahead for these things? I'd, look, I think as the broker, the really important thing, um, I think there are probably two things. One, preaching to the converted here, obviously, is in terms of um, where the placements are made um, and being satisfied that that carrier has in place an adequate response, catastrophe response, particularly in, in catastrophe-prone areas. 
Um, and I think some of that is looking at, and in the very big carriers, what in some cases what they have themselves in terms of resourcing, but also how robust are the outsourcing plans. Um, and if we look at somewhere like um, Australia, uh, Crawford can bring in resources from elsewhere in the world, and we can generally respond to anything that's thrown thrown at us. So I think the the the, the carriers that we're engaged with and who utilize us and expect us to be there when there's a catastrophe, um, we can generally fulfill those. Um, it can be more challenging when somebody, a client that we're not engaged with, um, you, you know, suddenly says, look, I've got 5,000 or 10,000 cases that need inspections. We do have some facilities in some places in terms of how we can deal with that around self-service apps and utilizing um, expertise from the desk. So our, our ability to deal with that has improved. But I think a lot of it does go back to how robust are the response plans um, with wherever, wherever the covers are being placed. Now, that said, I think the brokers themselves, um, <clears throat> what we've seen is they tend to um, have pretty, pretty good response plans, particularly when they're in an area where they think an event could happen. And, you know, the areas you mentioned, New South Wales and the Panhandle, et cetera, are good examples. Um, and, and what I've seen is that their clients usually have contact numbers, um, out of hours, 24-hour type responses, so that they can actually get it, get, get if, if they have damage, they can get it out fast. They can, they can notify the broker fast who can get it um, elevated to whoever is um, appointed to make contact, whether that's directly through a, an adjusting our claims firm or whether that's directly uh, through the carrier. So Sorry. a lot of it is just that preparation work and then and then particularly being on hand when the event is unfolding or at least in the immediate aftermath when people are trying to pick up the pieces Paul. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean I appreciate that every catastrophe is different and you know in that respect as well every business that perhaps a you know a broker is dealing with is, is going to be different as well but are there any sort of commonalities between disaster plans sort of starting points that brokers can apply sort of irrespective of the business that they're working with? Yeah, look, usually the big things around most businesses are going to be the staff mm -hmm. um, and how the staff are actually um, taken care of or protected or where they go or how they're likely to be affected in different scenarios. Because if you don't have the staff, which I guess is one of the big concerns with coronavirus at the moment, if you don't have the staff, things degrade very quickly. And I think the second point is access. And particularly after flooding, access can be delayed um, now, the delay doesn't have to be wasted either because the various pieces in place around mitigation, etc., can be lined up um, to mobilize as soon as access is available. On occasions, the authorities, the public authorities, prevent access for a whole range of safety reasons. Um, and that can stretch for several days after an event, or indeed it can be lifted within 12 hours. And I think the other point is, stock and supply chain, particularly any factoring or distribution business, um, you know, retail factoring distribution, the supply chain is absolutely crucial um, on the assumption that if there's a lot of damage, that the stock that was in place is going to need replacement and that's needed before you can start trading again. Access to that is, is the other crucial element. 
Now, there are lots and lots of things, and one can make a list of maybe 50 items, Paul, mm-hmm. but I think those are crucial. You need staff to make things happen, and you need your stock uh, to make things happen. Now, if you're in the food business, then clearly the cleaning out and desanitation is um, absolutely critical. And so what we see in some businesses, those, for example, go to the fore, um, because flood waters are not just, as most people know, just nice clean waters that carry all sorts of residues and overflowed, um, overflowing um, sewage lines, etc. So the, the deep cleaning that's needed even after waters have receded is huge. And I, I keep talking about flood and water, but obviously windstorm poses different issues. It can be structural, but windstorm damage tends to be capable of being repaired faster because you're not going through the whole drying out um, stripping out and cleansing um, process to the same extent. And, and, of and again, fires fires are another one, but fires, ironically, <clears throat> again, can be a little more simple insofar as when access is available, the work can start immediately in terms of assessments, stripping out, and getting it prepared for new work. It's water and flood are the, um, are the two, are, are, are really the big delay factors or delaying circumstances. And of course, when a disaster takes place, I mean, a broker's own business could be disrupted. Um, I mean, what contingency plans can a broker make? I think that the contingency plans of a lot of professional services businesses, and I think those contingency plans are around having um, fallback in terms of our people, our people um, able to work at home. So have they got mobile um, IT kit? or have they got their desktops encrypted to move them home if, if necessary, um, and, and also telephony. So whilst lots of people have mobile phones, it's not always plugged into a centralized um, service for the business. So the mobile phone can, can, can hang remotely from the business, um, which is okay, but if you want to continue business as usual, but with people at different nodes, which might effectively be their homes, I think, I think that sort of platform is, um, should, should be looked at. <clears throat> and in many instances, and in the large broking firms, you find that the kit is integrated with the, um, is integrated with the telephony, um, and you know, where headsets would be quite popular. And so again, being able to migrate those to an alternative premises. Uh, and look, an ideal is that you've got a hot site. Um, the problem, I think, with hot sites uh, is for example, a broker, I'm just going to pick a number, make it up, say they've got 50 people. Well, to go and rent 50 hot sites continuously is a very, very expensive proposition. But they may work out that there are five critical people they need to keep together, or seven critical people they need to keep together, and perhaps consider having a hot site for those seven. But it needs to be, if you're in a catastrophe zone, it does need to be outside that zone or somewhere remotely. And I know from a Crawford perspective, um, we're we're quite conscious of that, so that if we if we lose some base that might be down in Florida, that we can actually pull them over straight up onto our um, Ring Central telephony um, and systems at any of our other locations in the U.S. So I don't think I don't think it's much different for mo- for either the brokers or most um, professional services businesses, except with the broker, of course, they're going to be inundated with. Um, client um, expectations and client calls when an event happens. 
So, I mean, it's probably a, a sweeping question, this, but I mean, what would you say for, from you know, the Crawford perspective has been perhaps the most difficult catastrophe that you've had to deal with in recent years, and, and, and why would you pick that one? Um, I, I think, uh, look, there may be others in the U.S. go back to the Sandys and Katrinas, which I wasn't directly involved in. So in terms of what I've been involved in um, and at scale, I think, I think 2017 was certainly a challenging. And it was challenging because you got three successive big hits. So each time you kind of feel you're <clears throat> getting your arms around something, there was another big hit. And they were all very big events. Um, and actually, the, the, from those events was the genesis of a platform that we specially built for catastrophe responses and managing our resources, which we call Renovo which stands for Restore, because Restore is genuinely what we see ourselves as being about, restoring um, your lives, businesses, and communities after events um, have taken place. But it has, I would say, it's night and day for us in terms of having that platform and the ease with which we can engage across the, the roster of many thousands of catastrophe adjusters, deploy them where needed, um, at the same time, it tracks performance, it tracks the workloads, it tracks the turnaround times. We can see heat maps um, straight off of where the pressure points are, where we maybe need to move in some additional resource. And we can manage that, I was, I'm going to say honestly, by the hour. Practically, you manage it by the day. Um, but you can actually see real time what's going on. And so I would say that was a challenge for us. Um, Interestingly, I think we met the challenge because coming off 2017, um, we added a number of new clients who seemed somewhat dissatisfied with performance from other, other partners they had, um, and, the, and, 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 and they've come to us. And I think that too really will, well, we've already tried it in anger on a couple of occasions, but obviously we haven't had a repeat of 2017 just yet, um, but it seems to work really effectively, and it makes... It makes the management of the event much smoother, um, much more controlled, uh, and, and also we can have a, a, a conversation twice a day if, they, if, if our clients want it, telling them exactly where we're at um, in terms of resourcing responses, um, and if there's some particular, particularly vulnerable uh, policyholder they wish, wish us to get to, it's very easy to see who's closest and just divert the resource if we have to. So a, li a little but bit. Of say, mm -hmm. Sorry, Paul. No, I was just going to say a, a little bit of a subject change, perhaps. But um, I, I understand that, mm. that you're, you're a, a sailor yourself. Um, have you ever had any of your own disasters at sea? No, no, and I'm hoping not to anytime soon. Look, my, my sailing at the moment is largely um, what I'm probably going to call escapism. So when you go ten or fifteen miles offshore. Um, you are quite away from, from, from a lot of people. Um, and honestly, you just live in the moment. Um, I really enjoy it. And it is, when I say escapism, it's, it's completely different. You, you cannot think about other things if you're, if you're out um, sailing. And I, I, back in a younger life, I used to race. I don't race anymore either. It is it's just purely for enjoyment. I'm fortunate that my wife also enjoys it. So we just, we just head out and, and do that. Um, 
I'd, I'd love to get a little more adventurous with it, um, given the time, maybe sometime in the future, um, and go a little farther afield. But I have no plans, I can tell you, to do any ocean crossings. Because that's the point I think Paul is, is, uh, crosses over from being um, an enjoyable pastime to be something that can become hard work very fast. So, so no chance of seeing you in a future America's Cup then? Not, not even close. I'll be, I'll be happy, happy to be um, on the shoreline and watching them. That'd be fantastic. Or in a little motorboat, following them around would be superb. But I have no ambition to step on board any of those machines. <laughs> so uh, but we are running out of time, Kieran. But if, if someone wants to reach out to you after this, uh, how could they find you? Uh, through LinkedIn? Uh, yeah, they get me on LinkedIn. Um, Big thing is Kieran is K-I-E-R-A-N. Um, if it goes as E-I, I'm not really sure what comes up. And um, look, ap- after that, I mean, my, uh, I'm on Crawford's um, open email system, um, and the, the format there is kieran.rigby at croco.co.uk. And absolutely delighted if anybody wants to reach out or uh, any, any, any comments on the, um, on the content of the podcast or any other issues. Uh, relating to the claims business. That's superb. Kieran, thank you very much for your time. Um, To everybody listening, I'm Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes.